Welcome to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast with Alex Dean and Brian Cunningham. Here we have a drink, have a laugh, and you just might learn something about our favorite stories from history. Please visit our website at hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you like the show, please rate us five stars and leave a review. Cheers. This episode of the Hidden History Happy Hour was recorded in front of a live studio audience. Welcome back, listeners, to the Hidden History Happy Hour with us, Alex and Brian. Today, we also have a special guest mixologist that we'll be introducing in a minute. Thank you so much to all of our listeners uh, who have listened, subscribed, rated us five stars, and submitted story ideas. Please keep them coming. And a special thanks to Palantir Technologies for graciously allowing us, in the midst of COVID, to use their Denver headquarters space for our first live event. And thank you so much to all of our guests for joining us for our first live event. Thank you. As you know, listeners, normally here at the Hidden History Happy Hour, we try to quaff a beverage or two uh, after the fashion of the story and the characters and what they might have enjoyed in their time. But we're going to diverge from that path today. Why? Good question. Because when you hear my story, it will be obvious why we're not following our subjects' food and beverage preferences. But also, more importantly, we're graced with the celebrity bartender, John Grant, who is not only a gifted mixologist, but has his own podcast, which maybe John can tell us about. John. Thank you, Brian uh, and Alex. I appreciate being here. Uh, yes, I'll plug my own podcast first. Uh, my podcast, uh, which I do with a friend of mine, is about uh, the second greatest thing to ever come out of the UK after uh, Alex himself, which is the show Doctor Who. Uh, the friend and I watched Doctor Who talk about it. I highly recommend it. It should be entertaining and funny and lots of good banter. It's called No, Not the Mind Probe, uh, which is a reference to a, a famous line on the show. Uh, but So thanks for having me. Uh, the, the drink of choice today is a painkiller. Uh, which is a, a drink of uh, rum, orange juice, pineapple juice, uh, cream of coconut, and a little nutmeg. Is Tastes that good. Also, John, a commentary on the show. <laughs> it could be call. whatever you need to get through the show, folks. Um, uh, but I chose it uh, one because of the reference to the story we'll be hearing later, but also because it's a it's actually got a really interesting, fun history. Uh, the painkiller was invented in the early '80s uh, by, in a, a bar on Joost Van Dyke, which, by the name, you'll be able to tell is from the British Virgin Islands. Very British, British name. Uh, the bar is called the Soggy Dollar, uh, and uh, it is so named because I've been to this bar, it's very cool, but it is not reachable uh, by road, uh, so most people go to the bar by anchoring a boat uh, in the bay and swimming to shore. So all of the money that people have to spend on the drinks is wet, and there's actually a clothesline behind the bar where they have wet dollars and, and $10 bills uh, hanging to dry. Um, and then... Uh, and I did a little research since in the in the spirit of history here. Oh, and I should say, by the way, that the uh, also the painkiller, the official painkiller is made with Pusser's rum, uh, which is the rum you mentioned in your very first episode, I believe. Is, uh, the, That's the correct. Rum used by That's the Royal Navy, yes. Uh, and uh, Pusser's is very litigious and actually has trademarked the <laughs> recipe. So a painkiller is technically only made. Uh, with Pusser's Rum, uh, and you have to call it something else. So this else is more of an annoyance killer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so uh, my little interesting history tidbit uh, is that I found, I was looking into, all right, is alcohol actually legitimately a painkiller, or has it ever been studied in such a way? And, of course, there have been lots of studies trying to find a, a justification. Uh, 
Uh, but the most interesting one I found was uh, in May 1941, a scientist at Cornell uh, released a study concluding, quote, whiskey is one of the cheapest and best painkillers known to man. Uh, and they did a very interesting experiment. I tried to find the study because I was interested to understand how they tested this. Um, but they, the researchers tried a mixture of 95% grain alcohol <laughs> in a glass with a little bit of ginger ale, uh, and they found that it raises the threshold of pain 45% for two hours. Um, I, I don't know how they tested pain. I kind of hope they just got drunk and wailed on each other for a while, uh, and that, that's what, uh, what led to the conclusion. Um, they conclude uh, that, quote, uh, alcohol is cheaper than morphine. Um, of course, alcohol is habit-forming, but an alcohol habit is less difficult to deal with than a morphine habit. Uh, so uh, damning with faint praise there. Hard but, uh, yeah, exactly. So there you go, the, the painkiller cocktail. So Thank you very much, John. Thank you, John. Well, look, we're all about the science here on the Hidden History Happy Hour, so I just have to wonder, what was the control group drinking? Because aren't you supposed to not know that you're getting the placebo? But that's for another time. So many firsts on the Hidden History Happy Hour, everybody. First of all, as I mentioned, this is our first episode with a live audience. Secondly, and for those folks of you here with us in the room, it's our first attempt at multimedia. So please bear with me as I try to show you some photos and play some sound during the episode. And for the luckier listeners who are tuning in to our podcast, that will all be in the show notes. And by the time it airs, we'll have it perfected, no matter how much I might screw it up here. So, Alex... I have had one major surgical procedure in my life. It was a cervical disc replacement. It was four years ago. I got a nice, comfortable bed. They gave me some sleepy, happy juice in an IV. I dozed off. I woke up. I went home. I sat around for a couple days on painkillers, which is to say that thanks to modern medicine, I have not been much the worse wear for the experience. But our first story is slightly different, no? It is very different. I... Recall that episode in your life slightly differently because I remember you moaning a hell of a lot <laughs> throughout the entire period. But I, in all sympathy, I, it's a serious procedure and I sympathize. Yeah, so the, our story today is this Leonid Rogotsov was the doctor on the sixth Soviet Antarctic expedition. Everyone says in any story set at any point in the Cold War, this was at the height of the Cold War. <laughs> but this really was at the height of the Cold War. So between September 1960 and October uh, 1961. And they were to set up their, their camp and perform experiments for science in the Schirmacher Oasis, which is a case of nominative false advertising, if ever <laughs> I heard one. It's a bleak and desolate uh, place in the Antarctic. They set up, everything was fine. And then in April of 1961, Rogotsov, the only doctor on the ex uh, expedition, began to feel sick. This is bad if you are in Cold War Antarctic you took a ship that took months to get you there and isn't due back uh, for the best part of another year. Much like the first people of Mars will experience. Possibly, although let's hope there's no Cold War by then. Um, <laughs> his illness particularized, as they say in medicine, so you, work, you feel bad all over and then it works out to a particular <clears throat> part of your body. It was the right side of his gut. He realized he had peritonitis. Solution, remove appendix. Easy to diagnose, Hard to perform when you're the doctor and there is nobody else qualified with you. Nearest Soviet help, a thousand miles away at the Myrny Air Base. And they can't help anyway, they haven't got a plane. Help that's closer, Western powers. Not supposed to ask them for help, really. And even if you did, because they did, they haven't got planes either. And if they did have a plane, it's the middle of an Antarctic blizzard so they couldn't fly. Yeah. All in all, he's going to have to do it on his own. So... The 27-year-old Leonid Rogotsov lies down on his uh, couch with his friends around him watching what, what he's doing, 
props up a mirror, like in Master and Commander, if you've seen the film. He injects a little Novocaine, Ugh. which is a, a very weak painkiller they used to give you in your gums if you go to the dentist. Novocaine, it's the only painkiller he can allow himself. Can't take anything to, that might numb his mind. He's going to perform surgery on himself, and he's running a high fever. And Alex, if I'm not mistaken, the Novocaine is the painkiller they give you before they put the real painkiller into your gum. Correct. It's like yeah. a pre-painkiller. So yeah. And that's all he can afford to take, especially because he's running a fever, he's dizzy, he's disoriented, and he's got a razor-sharp scalpel he's about to take to his own stomach. So, I think we will forgive somebody making a mistake in these circumstances. He does... He opens himself up and he cuts into his own intestines. Paws operation to sew his own guts back up, to sew his own intestines back up, uh, which he successfully does, then has a five-inch gaping hole in his stomach to remove his appendix. Still with me? Two holes. We got you. He cuts out the blackened appendix over the course of a quite significant amount of time, having had to take rests and pause and um, and be sure that he was okay. Sews himself back up. Within two weeks, he's back at work. He returns to St. Petersburg, where he becomes head of surgery. He goes back to the hospital the day he goes home, and he works there until retirement in 2000. He was awarded the Order of the Red Banner. He never liked to make a fuss about it. Why do I tell this story, and why do I like this story? Well... The next time you're thinking that you're having a bad day, <laughs> reflect on what it must have felt like, age 27, to look down at your swollen stomach and, and realise what, despite the high fever you're going through, you're going to have to do to yourself. And especially that moment right before you put the scalpel in as you're deciding, can I do this or can I not? In high school, Alex, I worked in a donut shop. Uh, it doesn't matter which brand. And in this donut shop, <laughs> they had a metal machine that punched the donuts in batter into the fryer. Right. And what the, happened to the bits in the middle? The, that you do not want to know. Unless you want to practice <laughs> FDA uh, law, you don't want to know anything about what's in and what's not in donuts. Okay. But the, the boss is by himself on New Year's Eve. He is running this machine. He gets his hand in the wrong place, and his hand is pinched in between the two metal bars that are supposed to pull, uh, push the donut through. He has enough presence of mind to reach over and flip the power switch off. Which is great, except he's trapped. This is, by the way, folks, this is, by the way, folks, 1978, no cell phones, nothing. He's trapped with his hand squeezed with this metal. He finally realizes, I can't reach the phone. I can't move out of here. So he has to make the decision to flip the power back on, knowing that it's going to crush all the bones in his hand. Then he's got to stumble over to the phone and call, I guess, 911 if there was a 911. That is nothing compared to this story, but I know that I know, guy. I think it's something listening to it. I, <laughs> I feel like it's a little something. I, I, well, I think I would have held on and hoped that somebody could have heard my cries or something. I, I'm just such a wimp. I don't think I'd have turned the machine back on that they found me dead in the shop. Well, he also didn't have uh, access to John Grant's painkiller or annoyance right. killer either. So it's, it's just grisly to think about. Gruesome, gruesome, yes. Horrific, yes. But at least, Alex, Rogozov was not eaten by his colleagues. <laughs> not so the victims of our next story. They were not so fortunate. Being in Denver, Colorado, there's so many options for creepy, gruesome stories. First of all, as many of you probably know, Stephen King stayed in the Stanley Hotel up in Estes Park, Colorado, when he wrote The Shining, and a lot of the interior shots are inspired by that. I did <clears> not know that. We have 
prostitutes. We have ghosts of prostitutes. We have bootleggers. We have it all here in Colorado. But one story has to stand above all others. It has guns. It has hatchets. It has betrayal. It has robbery. It has murder. And, as you may have guessed, it has cannibalism. So let me introduce you, if I can do the audio visuals here. Bear with me for a second. Let me introduce you to one Mr. Alfred Packer. You'll see this in the show notes. Good-looking guy, no? As Courtney, Courtney's hair actually reminds me a little bit of Al, Al Packer's hair as, as, we, as we look at that. So Alfred Griner Packer was born in Allegheny County, Pennsylvania in 1842. Fun fact, whilst his legal name always remained Alfred, A-L-F-R-E-D, after a tattoo artist misspelled his name on his own skin, Packer embraced the change and started referring to himself as Alfred, A-L-F-E-R-D, for the rest of his life. So Alfred served in the Union Army during the Civil War, although there's some doubt about his heroics on the battlefield. After the war, Packer went west, worked at numerous odd jobs, hunter, wagon driver, ranch hand, field worker, but really couldn't hold a job, much like myself. He attempted to refashion himself as a frontier guide, an endeavor seriously undermined by the fact that he was prone to losing his way regularly. As fate would have it, <clears throat> Packer wound up here in Colorado trying to be a miner, and this is where our tale begins. In late 1873, Packer got himself hired to take a group of men over the Rocky Mountains, all men, 21 of them. This despite having little food, few weapons, and to put it politely, limited skills. Help me out with my geography as a visitor. How far away is that from here? So they actually started in Utah, but they okay. wound up decamping, as we'll see in a minute, in a place called Uray, Colorado, which for any of you who work here in Denver and haven't been there, it's the ice climbing capital of the world, and it is a very, very beautiful place, hard to get to, but it's a great place to visit. So it's late 1873. He recruits, he recruits this group of uh, people who want to get over the Rocky Mountains. He takes them on their way with limited skills, as I said, only... <clears throat> six out of the 21 people actually want to follow him the whole way because they get a sense of his skills as they're on the way. Nonetheless, somehow, by January 1874, they made it to Ute Indian Chief Ure's winter camp near what, near, near what is now Montrose, Colorado. Five of the 20 decided to go with him when he decided to take the risk to take the next step over the mountains in February. And if anybody has spent any time in the mountains in Colorado between, say, November and March, maybe not the best decision. They leave in February, April 16th. Packer comes down from the mountains fat, and no one else comes down at all. <laughs> Over the next decade, Alfred, 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 Packer, Alfred. Yeah, Alfred Packer told numerous different versions of the story of what happened in those mountains. In most of the versions of the story, Packer admits that he had killed one of his comrades, reported to history as that redhead Bell, when Bell, according to Alfred Packer, started acting crazy while eating the meat from the leg of another one of their travelers. Ironically, this other traveler had a profession as a butcher. You should have kept that one alive. That's, that's, <laughs> the, one, that's the guy you wanted. Yeah. <laughs> well, again, he had limited skills, Alex. Right. So Alfred's story was that Bell rushed him with a hatchet or a rifle butt, depending on which version of the story it was, and Packer had to shoot him in self-defense in the stomach. Packer claimed 
that the butcher, Miller, and the others, except for Bell, were all dead when he returned to camp and was attacked by the insane redhead Bell. Packer signed a confession, his first of two, in May 1874 and was promptly arrested and jailed in Hinsdale, Colorado, with most residents expecting this, and I'm quoting from the local newspapers at the time, man-eating murderer to soon meet the gallows. Except that one August morning, Packer was just gone from his cell. He disappeared and was nowhere to be found. And almost on the same exact day, an illustrator from Harper's Weekly magazine, insert comment on the media here, found Packer's camp and the grizzly remains all with skull fractures and all, and I'm now quoting, with the fleshy and fatty parts of their body sliced away. Good grief. But what do you think of this, Alex, so far? Well, it's reminding me of, uh, there's a, a story by uh, Lon Fuller in your Harvard Law Review called The Spelunkian Explorers, where um, he tells the story of uh, people who get trapped in Spelunking. Spelunking is cave explorer, exploring. A right. bunch of people get trapped in a cave and uh, wind up eating one of their number. And Fuller, who's a legal philosopher, uh, took uh, five judges and took through different legal interpretations of whether that was okay or not. I'm pretty sure what you're recounting here is not okay. Well, this does seem like actually a great hypothetical for an ethics class, if anybody were teaching that. But interestingly enough, Alex Dean, in 1883 and today, in no state in the United States, is cannibalism illegal. Murder Murder, is illegal. Right. Not cannibalism. <clears throat> so, our now-confessed cannibal remained at large until 1883, when a member of his original party of 21 recognized him in a bar in Wyoming, posing as John Schwartz. He was arrested again and sent back to Colorado for trial. He then signed his second confession, with key details differing from the first, but still claiming he only killed Bell in self-defense and only ate the others to survive until he could get down the mountain. Finally tried for murder of one of his companions in 1883, Packer was convicted on Friday the 13th, no less. He was found guilty largely on the basis of his varying confessions, but also because by this time they had found the corpse of one Israel Swan, whose remains showed signs of hand-to-hand combat. Also, his jailbreak probably didn't help his case. He was sentenced to die by hanging on May 19th, 1883, but this is not by any means the end of the story of the Colorado cannibal. Alfred Packer's execution was stayed three days later because lawyers in the room will appreciate this. His lawyers found a loophole. And Alex Dean, I know you used to be a defense lawyer. Yeah, I'm struggling to see what the argument here is. Ah, because, <clears throat> because I've left out a key fact. When Alfred Packer was charged with the murder, Colorado oh, was a no, territory yeah. of the United States. Yeah. But when he was sentenced to death, was Colorado state. was a state yeah. of the United States. Which, I mean, but so what? You still killed a guy. I mean, this is ridiculous. <laughs> well, a local paper reported on Packer's sentencing thusly, and I'm only paraphrasing slightly. Al, when you came to this county, there were seven Democrats here. And you ate, you ate five of them. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm going to read you the actual quote from the judge that was in the local papers, which, if I hadn't paraphrased it, you probably would have no idea what the words strung together actually mean. The judge said, and I'm quoting, 
Stand up, you voracious man-eating son of a bitch, and receive your sentence. When you came to Hinsdale County, there were seven Democrats, but now you ate five of them, goddamn you. I sentence you to be hanged by the neck until you're dead, dead, dead. As a warning, again, as a warning, again, reducing the Democratic population of this county. Packer, you Republican cannibal. I would sentence you to hell, but the statutes forbid it. <laughs> Talk about gerrymandering. <clears throat> it's, you know, I, I, uh, I won't say who because he's still serving, but I met a member of your Senate who said, in my state, if you kill somebody, we'll kill you right back. <laughs> <laughs> now, still not the end of the story, because in 1901... Alfred Packer was pardoned by a Republican governor, I should note, and lived a free man until 1917. Good grief. And as our regular listeners know, Alex, we don't just leave a story at the end of a dusty book jacket. My book's got jackets, not dusty, but all right. Very, very important point, and you can get it on Amazon as long as you're willing to wait till Father's Day. We're happy to share with everyone, especially all of you folks that live in Colorado, a couple of Modernish footnotes to Mr. Packer's story. And by the way, any of you guys eating the beef jerky from out in the other room, I might put that down. There have been a few minor movies made about Alfred Packer and one trippy 1993 cartoon feature by the same two Coloradans who brought you South Park. And it is titled, and I'm quoting, Cannibal the Musical! Exclamation <clears throat> point. Packer is also the subject of a 1960s folk song, the aptly named Ballad of Alfred Packer by a pretty well-known folk singer at the time, uh, Phil Oakes. I'll just read you the chorus of this tune. They called him a murderer, a cannibal, a thief. It just doesn't pay to eat anything but government-inspected beef. I was laughing, I was laughing from thief because it, it rhymes with beef, and I was just waiting for the, the inevitable. But nearest and dearest to my heart, as a proud alumni of the University of Colorado, right up the road in Boulder. When it came time in 1968 for my alma mater, the University of Colorado, to name its new student union grill, they chose to name it after old Alfred Packer. And to this day, you can drive 60 miles north and eat lunch at the Alfred Packer Grill on the University of Colorado campus. Also, when I was there... (laughs) A lifetime ago, they had a one-day bacchanalia called Alfred Packer Days, where they had such unbelievably politically incorrect contests as the most edible thighs contest and the sausage-eating contest. And, and this, was, this was the 80s. It wasn't that long ago. But, Alex Dean, <clears throat> we would not be doing a service to history to end this story without examining, did he or did he not do it? He did it. Well, <laughs> well, you say that, but it turns out Packer's case has been revisited multiple times over the last century with one group of scholars absolutely certain he was guilty of murder and another group of scholars absolutely certain he wasn't. But rather than us taking sides, Alex, because as we've said before, we're not really historians in any sense of the I'm word. I'm definitely not. I will simply read the bottom line from a 2021 Colorado TV station examination of the case, and I'm quoting, To his dying day, Packer maintained his innocence, insisting that while he killed Bell in self-defense and did eat the men to survive, he did not murder the others. Today, experts still are not sure what to believe, and with limited evidence available, it's becoming more and more likely that we will never know. And yet, that mystery seems to be what is keeping Packer's memory alive in Colorado. Was this a case of cold-blooded murder who slipped through the hands of justice, or is it a tale of desperate survival? 
As of now, concluded the TV station, it's an unanswerable question that has kept countless people hungry for the truth. And no matter how many times they chew it over, it still doesn't taste like the full truth. <laughs> I give you the story of Alfred Packer. And Alex, what your regular fans will know is that you're a huge fan of fictional detective Columbo. And Correct. so I have to ask you, WWCD, what would Columbo do? Um, he would have found some obscure piece of, of evidence, uh, no doubt helped by his uh, accused's excessive confidence. Um, it, your story is a very good one. And I know, it's, I, I remember very little from my time at law school, but I remember this, that. What year did you say his trial was? It was 18, I think it was 18... 1883. 1883, the, I believe. The leading British case on whether you can kill and eat someone, which for some reason stayed in my <laughs> mind, uh, just in case you needed to pull that bit of knowledge out of your head, is called Dudley and Stevens. And it's memorable not least because they ate the cabin boy, right? So they yes. were uh, guys who were afloat in their... Um, uh, raft and they uh, they ate the cabin boy um, and uh, were told quite firmly by the court, no, you couldn't do that. And that was 1884. Well, apparently great ideas come to jurists around the world at the same time. Thank you for listening to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you have questions, comments or suggestions for topics, you can find us on Twitter or on our website, hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com. We look forward to joining you next time. We thank our gifted producers, Jeremy Corr and Kate Cruz, and our visionary executive producer, Ivan Williams, without whom this podcast would be, well, history. And thanks also to our art designer, David Wardle. Cheers. Cheers.